from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand him over to the judge and he to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out again until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray as we come to um, think through this uh, scripture text that Jeff has just read for us. Let's pray. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth, says the Lord. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Father God, we thank you for your word and we pray that that effect will be felt among us this morning. Lord God, that you would achieve your purposes among us, that you would cause us to grow more and more uh, in love and thanksgiving for what you've done for us and who you've made us and what you've done through Jesus, your son. So we pray these things in his name. Give us clarity, we pray, Holy Spirit. Um, help us and guide us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So if you want to grab those uh, verses, <coughs> they're right in front of you. Just the six verses today. And um, <coughs> we're really sort of building uh, week by week on this series that we've got. Um, we've, we've been working through, we started out in this uh, section of Matthew's Gospel called the Sermon on the Mount. And there's these sort of three chapters where Jesus gives this really uh, key and fundamental teaching to his disciples. And he's saying to them, if, if, if you want to follow me, um, this is what your life together should look like. And so that's why the, the series is entitled Life Together. It's just uh, this sort of fundamental teaching on, on, on what, the, what that looks like. And last week, um, we had Mark Scheibe teaching, and um, he uh, was, was really sort of getting uh, the ball rolling in this new sort of section. You know, within the Sermon on the Mount, you've got mini sections. And so last week, he started a mini section, I suppose. And it's all about how do Jesus' people, how do the followers of Jesus relate to the law? You know, that would have been a question uh, that would have been key on the minds of Jesus' first listeners. How do they relate to the law? What is the law? Uh, when, we, when we use that term, <clears throat> I suppose in sort of Christian uh, terms, uh, we're, we're thinking primarily of the, the teachings of the Old Testament. That would have been referred to as the law by a first century Jew. The law. Uh, the teachings of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, I suppose, you know, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all that stuff in the Old Testament. And, and they were God's clear requirement for living. You know, God, God gave his law and he said to his people, this is how I want you to live in response to me in response to what I've shared about me and, and, and my heart and what I've done to save you. This is how you live. That's what the law is and was. And Jesus, as we saw last week, Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. 
I've come to do it. I'm not sweeping all that stuff aside and starting this radical new religion that has no relation with anything else at all. No. He said, I've come to complete the work. I've come to finish the law. And he goes on to say, as we saw last week, unless, he says to his people, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not my people. You don't get to call yourself a follower of Jesus. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter my kingdom. You're not my followers. And for the listeners there, and possibly for us as well, um, that, that's not good news. And because they would have looked at the scribes and the Pharisees, and they would have held that these individuals uh, were the definition of righteousness, the, the definition of keeping the law, and of making God happy. And, and, and these are people who pursued this sort of law-keeping to the nth degree. <clears throat> and Jesus is saying to his followers, unless your righteousness is better than theirs, it's higher, it's deeper, if it exceed, unless it exceeds that, you're not my people. And so those listeners to the Sermon on the Mount would have heard Jesus say this and taken a big, deep uh, intake of air. Wow, yeah, there was, if I can't be more righteous than, if, if I have to be more righteous than a Pharisee, then there's no hope for me. They would have thought. So Jesus then takes, <clears throat> and what we'll be seeing today, he takes some of the big ten, right, some of the big ten commandments uh, to sort of show what he means about righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, uh, about living uh, in a way that pleases God in light of what Jesus has done. And so, and so over the next few weeks, we'll see, for example, today, uh, Jesus takes the, the commandment, do not murder, you know, one of the big ten from the Ten Commandments. Uh, next week, he'll talk about do not commit adultery. Uh, a week after that, you know, um, do, do not give false witness. That's the ninth commandment. So Jesus is sort of taking some of these big commandments, and he's breaking them down, and he's saying, um, I'm showing you how to be righteous. I'm showing you how to live life together. And he gives us details about what that looks like. Another way we could think of it, I suppose, is that over the next few weeks, as we're looking at the, some of the way that Jesus describes the big ten here, he's talking about defeaters to community. You know, Jesus is talking about life together. And so he's teaching about things that oppose community, that sort of break it down, that sort of uh, weaken it. And, and we'll see that today. And I think this is hugely relevant for us as a church right now. Um, I, I think it's something that we see today in many churches. Um, and what we'll be dealing with here is this sort of situation that Jesus describes of unresolved conflict, of unchecked anger. And it's so damaging. And, and I think um, in my sort of, uh, well, knowledge, I suppose, um, I, I would be willing to, to guess that it's probably the number one cause of church disunity and church splits is what we'll be dealing with today across the board in any church. You can, you can pretty much bring it back to this. So we're looking today then at this issue of anger, the community defeater, anger. What, 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 are, we, what are we going to see? Well, we'll think of this te text under three headings. Number one, we'll think of the, the damage of anger. Number two, we'll think of the gospel for anger. And thirdly, we'll think of the alternative to anger. All right? So the damage, the gospel, and the alternative. And there is an alternative, praise God. Verse 21 and 22, look down at the text. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, so Jesus sort of starts with an easy one. You know, like a starter for 10, as they say on some quiz show. Um, he starts with an easy one. I think most people can agree, and probably most of you in the room can agree uh, on this one. This is right. Uh, you know, murder is not good. We shouldn't murder people. 
and, and it's right that, that, that for people who do murder people or whatever, uh, that the justice is done and that there's a punishment that comes along with that. We, we mostly would agree with that, I think. Um, but then he goes on, he says, but in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? He, Jesus is saying here, you've heard the law, do not murder. And that's a relatively easy one. But he's saying it's not enough simply to not murder someone. There's, there's a lot more to it than that. You know, he's saying, don't, don't think you've understood the law just by not killing somebody. That's not what this is about. Don't think you've passed the test so easily. Jesus is saying here that if you, if you stop there, then you can be smug and say, well, it's not me. I haven't done that one. And if you do, if you stop right there and say, well, I've passed that test, then you've settled for the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Because he says here, if you're even angry with a brother, that is a member of the covenant community, a brother or, or sister, the word is brother, but he's referring to all people within what we would say the church. If you're angry with a brother, he says you'll be liable to judgment. Seems to be that Jesus is treating anger against a brother or sister under the same heading as murder. That's mad. He, he says, if you even insult a brother, you're in trouble. If you carelessly call a brother or sister, you fool. You're guilty, he says. You're under judgment, the hell of fire. Can you see what he's doing? He's, 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 he's saying it goes deeper than simply picking up a weapon and finishing someone off. Uh, Jesus is saying here that it goes way, way back. It starts way earlier than that bit. It starts even deeper. Uh, we could say that murder, according to Jesus, murder is the fruit that you might see. But he is equally concerned at the root, where that stuff comes from. And according to Jesus... They are one and the same. God hates murder. But God also hates the root of murder. And he treats them equally. The root begins in the heart. Right? It's the, the, the heart is the innermost part of, of a person. It's, it's the deepest part according to the Bible. And it's there that the root begins that's that's where it gets planted that's where it then begins to sprout and it starts to get a bit of growth and that's when it starts to produce fruit and that fruit is evil it is dark it is poisonous and one of those fruits is when you actually pick up a weapon and finish someone off in rage um who's heard who here has heard of the heidelberg catechism if you haven't you, you should I think Sharon has heard of it. You've heard of it. No, no. And the Heidelberg Catechism. A catechism is a, is a series of questions and answers that have been written in order to teach and understand the Christian faith. And there was a particular point in history where there's a load of catechisms that were written um, uh, in order to sort of defend and, and shape and, and, and pass it on to the next generation. And one of those was called the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg's a place in Germany. 
where a lot of this stuff seems to happen. And it just helps us to expose and understand the sort of the Bible's approach to what Jesus is talking about here. It helps us to expose the fruit and the roots. So I think Johnny's got it up behind me here. The Heidelberg Catechism, number 105, it asks the question, what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? Right, the sixth commandment is you shall not murder. What is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? Here's the answer, summarizing as best it can the sort of the whole biblical teaching. That I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor. We've sort of heard that from Jesus already. Not by my thoughts, not by my words, not by my look, or gesture, and certainly not by my actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I'm to pull away from all desire for revenge. That's God's will for you in the sixth commandment. That's the root and the fruit. And God hates them both. This just expresses, this catechism expresses what Jesus here is teaching. He's teaching that your thoughts can be murderous. Your, your words can be murderous. The way you look at someone, the je- even your gesture, it says your body language, your deeds. Uh, the catechism goes on in another, in another question to say, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness, these are all disguised forms of murder. Anything we think, anything we say, anything we communicate, anything we do to sort of get that person out of the way, to do them away. Physical harm and homicide is one such fruit. Intentionally trashing someone's reputation to discredit them is another fruit. Harboring resentment that boils over is another fruit. Insulting, speaking ill of, even thinking about what you'd like to do to that person. You're kind of like a murder fantasy or something, like murder daydreaming. I don't know if that's a thing. Payback, that's all the fruit, that's all the evil stuff here. Even egging others on, it says in that catechism, to follow in step is still another fruit of what we're talking about here. St. John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. When we listen to this, we listen to the teaching here of Jesus we are condemned. We're, un- we're un- under the wrath of God. The holy, that is the holy anger of God against our unholy anger. We are in trouble. And perhaps it, it, that, that, that concept of holy anger might raise a question in your own mind as we're thinking about this and you're thinking about how it may or may not apply to you. You, you might be asking, well, is all anger sinful? Is it always wrong? Is there such thing as righteous anger? Maybe my anger, if you're feeling anger, maybe my anger is the righteous kind that's not sinful and therefore it's, it's acceptable. Maybe these things that we're hearing from Jesus don't apply to me because my anger is righteous. Well, the answer is, yes, it's true. There is such a thing as righteous anger. God has righteous anger. He has, it's called wrath, you know. Um, that's one of the old, the old words that are used. God's wrath. We sung, we sung about it. The wrath of God was satisfied. God is rightly angry against anything that is wrong, anything that is evil, anything that is unjust. That's the right response of a holy and loving God. And we too, because we're created in the image of God, we can, as human beings, 
possess righteous anger in ourselves. We can do that. Jesus himself, as a human being, tossed the tables in the temple, no doubt motivated in part by righteous anger, zeal for God. So, of course, it's possible to have righteous anger. Not only possible, I think it's, in some cases, the right thing. We, we must be motivated against injustice and evil. Before we move on to the next section, I've got um, three um, questions, scanning questions, um, if you like, that might help you to scan your heart and ask yourself whether, if you're feeling angry or have anger, whether your anger is righteous or unrighteous, whether it is sinful or sinless. This might just help you to figure it out. Here's the first question, the first scanning question. Does my anger make me look more like Jesus or less like Jesus? Answer, answer now in, your, in yourself. Don't, don't, I don't want hands up or anything. Uh, answer in yourself. Does my anger make me look more like Jesus or less like Jesus? What's your answer? Second question, is my anger focused ultimately on me, my feelings, my thoughts, my grievances, or is it focused on God, his grievance, his holiness, his glory, his renown? In other words, are you angry because God has been robbed of his glory or are you angry because you have been robbed of your glory? Thirdly and finally, third scanning question. Answer, answer, answer yourself this. Does your anger drive you to revenge? Or does it drive you towards restoration? Does it drive you to revenge? I want to get them. I want to take them down somehow or other. I want to get them out of the scene. That's revenge. Or does it drive you towards restoration? How can I build up? How can I be a peacemaker? How can I be merciful, loving in this situation? The damage of anger. How does he do as you allow those scanning questions to do some work within you? Do, you? do you concede that your anger is righteous or unrighteous? Is it Christ-like or is it not Christ-like? Well, the good news is that there is gospel, the gospel for anger. And the Heidelberg Catechism, I can tell you're all going to rush home and buy yourself a copy of the Heidelberg You can get it free online, by the way. It's great. It's brilliant. Um, and uh, the Heidelberg Catechism goes on um, in a few questions time. I think 107, there it is. Brilliant. Um, it's, it's not enough to just not do these things. There's more to it. There's always bad news before there's good news. Let's read it together. Is it enough, then, that we do not murder our neighbor in any, any such way? Okay, so just not doing bad things or thinking bad things, whatever. The answer is no, God wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly towards them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. 
So it's not enough just to not do the bad stuff. Have you actively loved your brother and sister as yourself? Have you always been merciful towards them? Have you always been kind towards them? Have you always been friendly towards them? Have you always sought to shield them from harm, even when they have offended you? Probably not. Let's be real. Probably not. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, right? We're all in this together. We've all messed up in this area. I know I have. And therefore, we're all under the judgment of God. God is righteously angry with our unrighteous anger. But there is good news. Amen, there is good news. Jesus said that he has come to fulfill the law. We saw that last week. And so... Here's how that is good news for our anger. Two ways that it can serve us, two ways that it can be good news. The first thing is that in the gospel, Jesus is our example. Jesus showed us how to handle offense. Okay, We know Jesus was capable of anger. He always had righteous anger. His anger was always selfless. It was always because of the zeal for the things of God. It was never tainted like ours is with envy and vindictiveness and a desire to hurt. People said bad things about Jesus all the time. They misrepresented him. They tried to eliminate him first with their words, then using violence. And trust me, that is far worse than anything you or I will ever experience in this life. And yet he did not smite them right he could have he did not blast them from heaven with a bunch of fireballs and just burn them up he could have done that but he didn't do that either his best friend peter who who denied that he even knew jesus jesus forgave him even ahead of peter's denial he says i will forgive you And when you have turned back to me, I want you to strengthen the brothers. He restored Peter. To Judas, the one who betrayed him, that sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. What did Jesus do? He didn't burn him up, cause the ground to open. and No, he served him. He washed his feet. He ate with him. What about the executioners? As they were nailing him to the cross, physically killing him, what did he do? Did he just go all quiet and sullen and think bad thoughts? No. He said, he prayed. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He prayed for those who were killing him. The gospel is good news because Jesus gives us this perfect example of how we are to treat, how we are to deal with offenses. And let's face it, our offenses are comparatively minor. They just are, compared to what Jesus received in his life. So because of the gospel, we can look to Jesus 
When our friends turn against us, when our enemies try to destroy us, we can look to Jesus and he will show us how we respond to those offences. So the gospel is good news because he's an example. But the gospel is good news because he is a substitute. You know, we know a substitute is someone who comes on for you, right, from the world of sport. You get subbed. Someone comes on for you and plays in your place and stands in your place, right? You get swapped out for someone who does it for you, who inserts himself into your position. That's the gospel. And it's not ultimately that Jesus went to the cross because he was a victim of injustice, although he was. And it wasn't because Jesus went to the cross because people betrayed him and sold him down the river, because they did. Jesus went to the cross because it was his plan all along. From the very beginning, that was what he was aiming for. He went to the cross as your substitute. He went to fulfill the law, he said, but he went to fulfill the law for you. You should have been on your way to that cross. Getting cut off from God forever. That's the direction you were on, but he took that path himself. He was your substitute. He went because you suck. And you can't do it yourself. And I can't do it myself. And we could never do it ourselves. We're rubbish on our own. In our own steam, we can't do it. See, God is rightly angry with our murderous hearts, with our thoughts and our words and our deeds. That is not how he made us to be. It's an offense to him. The anger of heaven will fall on that stuff because God can't turn away from that. He can't stop being true to himself. God must be angry at this rubbish. And therefore, left to our own, we are condemned. We are condemned. But in the gospel, the holy anger of God against our unholy anger fell on Jesus. Jesus took the anger, the wrath of God upon himself. That was the plan all along. He did it for you. He did it in your place. He's your substitute. It's the good news. It's the gospel. For all of your anger and your junk and your resentment he took that on himself and so when we understand that what he's done and when we receive that through trusting in Jesus trusting that he did it for us trusting that he's your substitute you are freed you are freed from the the the, the righteous anger of God the wrath of God not that it just disappeared and that God just suddenly changed his mind. It's that that wrath of God that should have been on you for your anger and your murderous hearts went on to Jesus instead. And Jesus took it to the grave in your place. He's your substitute. The Apostle Paul um, expresses this beautifully uh, in Titus 3. And he knows a thing or two about what it means to have a murderous heart. In fact, Paul, before he met Jesus had murderous heart, murderous intentions, um, murderous actions. He went rounding up and, and, and seeing Christians, 
put to death for following Jesus. He absolutely hated that stuff, detested it, did everything he could to destroy them and put them out of the way. He is all the bad stuff that we're talking about. I think it's up on the screen, is it, Johnny? Titus 3. This is how he starts. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Listen, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's how we are, aside from Jesus. But then he, he starts to speak about what the gospel has done to him and what he's done for us. Next verse. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit that he's poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There is so much in there. There is so much in there. We're not going to go through that in, in, in detail, but just allow that stuff to wash over you. Go read it when you get home. Washed, regenerated, Holy Spirit given, hope of new life. That's what happens when you come to Christ and believe in him. When you understand the gospel, it both humbles you and motivates you. It humbles you because you say, well, who am I? Who am I that I should be forgiven of all the offenses that I've committed against God? Who, the, who am I that I should be treated with such love and mercy and kindness? How can I possibly, therefore, hold a grudge against a brother or sister whom also Jesus has saved? How can I be offended? Sorry, how can I offend others by words or thoughts that I might have when I realize who I am and what God has done for me? If you understand the gospel, it humbles you. But it also motivates you. When you see that example of Jesus and how he dealt with those who offended him, those who hurt him, you see how you should be living. Right? When, when, when you realize that you've been treated by such kindness and grace and forgiveness, you will say, I want to live as Jesus lived. I want to show that I'm a follower of Jesus by following his example. So when I'm offended, I'll be quick to forgive because I understand the gospel. When I'm being hurt, I will pray, Father, forgive them. When, when I feel anger rising up, I'll deal with it quickly. I'll take it to God. The gospel motivates you. So we thought of the damage of anger. We thought of the gospel of anger. And thirdly, then, and finally, we're going to be thinking of the alternative to anger. How do we bring it to God then? You know, if, we, if, we, if we're starting to feel angry or resentful or, or bitter or something like that um, about some issue or, or, or offense or what, whatever it is, how, how do we deal with that? How do we as people who have been saved and forgiven and freed by the gospel of Jesus battle against our own unrighteous anger? And let's face it, as we've been thinking, that's the majority of our anger. What, what, what is the alternative? How can we counteract that? With two things. First, number one, we can pursue reconciliation. And number two, we can seek well-being. 
pursue reconciliation. Jesus gives us um, in, the, in this text here two sort of lived examples, two real-life examples about pursuing reconciliation. The first one is in the context of, of church. He says in verse um, 23 and 24, if you're offering your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And the picture here that we're given is, is worship within the, uh, within the temple, um, which would have been the context for worship in, 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 in the day, in Jesus' time. Um, bringing your offering to the altar uh, would have been offered by a priest on your behalf up to God. And, and what Jesus is saying here is in the context of that, as, as you're going and as you're, you're, you're going about the, the, uh, the thing of offering your, your offering or your, 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 um, your gift, and you remember, you've got to do something about it straight away, he says. Remembering, by the way, is not, not, not that you're suddenly remembering something you've f- forgotten in the past, because it's good to forget offenses and, and things, you know, it's good to put that away and forget and remember them no more. But, but what, what Jesus is saying here is when you're suddenly aware of or suddenly reminded of in the context of the worship service. And Jesus says here, the alternative to anger is to pursue reconciliation, is to get it sorted first. Get it done, says Jesus. And if it means leaving the worship service or leaving whatever offering thing you're doing and go and be reconciled with with your brother, do that first. Because it seems to be there is a connection between the the reconciliation between you and God and and, and you and your brother or sister, you know, the member of the the covenant community in our our context, the church. There's There's a connection between that. Vertical and horizontal. We see this uh, later on in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, God, God, God says, uh, you know, in, in the, in the um, Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. It's like a two-way thing, right? If we're not forgiving other people, how can we expect forgiveness? Or, or God says later on, uh, judge not or you will be judged. Don't be judgy with other people, otherwise the same thing is going to happen to you from above. There's this connection it's scary, isn't it? But it's, it's there in black and white. Ideally, I think practically speaking, we pursue reconciliation even before we enter into the worship scenario, the worship service. It's, it's worthwhile taking steps towards reconciliation before you go to the gathering, not during it. We do all we can to pursue reconciliation. But if it must be during, then do it during. It's better then than delaying it or not doing it at all. Here's what we don't do. We don't ignore it. We don't avoid the issue. We don't wait for this or that idiot to come to me first. We don't abstract ourselves from community. We don't move away and back off. As soon as it comes to mind, says Jesus, pursue reconciliation. If it happens during the meeting, then go then. This seems to be the principle here. Pursuing reconciliation deepens community. Avoiding reconciliation defeats community. Pursuing reconciliation deepens it. Avoiding it defeats it. In one of um, C.S. Lewis's maybe less well-known books, there's a book called The Great Divorce. And it's like an extended allegory, you know, like a, 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 a story or a picture story um, to, to point to a, a deeper spiritual thing. And, it, and, and the allegory here that, that he writes in this, this book, The Great Divorce, is about the journey of one person who dies on earth and goes up to heaven. 
And in the story, uh, the, the, the Lewis writes, um, the believer, you know, sort of leaves this world, uh, or his world, should we say, and, and in order for that to be achieved, he gets collected by this bus. And this bus is going around picking up all the other people who are leaving this world and going to the other place, wherever that may be. And anyway, he gets on this bus, and it starts to ascend. It takes off. It's not an ordinary bus, obviously. It takes off into the sky they go. And uh, as, as they start climbing and as they start ascending, the believer sees the, the city below. And he, he never realized how vast that city was and, and, and equally how empty it appeared to him. And, and, and as they went up, um, he, he became aware that there's more and more roads appearing, many roads with many houses, but most of those houses were unoccupied. You know, there, there were no lights on, no signs of life. Just, just, and the, the higher up he got, the, the more roads continued. They were sort of sprawling outwards. And maybe there was the odd sign of life here and there, the odd light on or whatever. So he asks the driver of this bus, why is that so? I, I had no idea this city was so big. And the driver said, well, down there, people, they fell out all the time. And when they fell out, they just simply moved away. They, they, they just went down the road and built another house. Just so they could start afresh and, and be, be on their own. And then what happened is they often fell out again with something or someone else. And then they moved off again. And so the entire city was doing this. They were just moving out and out and out, building more and more new homes for themselves, falling out and, and, and going further afield again. And so it continued. We could say, to use our language, they failed to pursue reconciliation. In that scenario, community was defeated. People just ended up alone and isolated and very offended. They couldn't live with anyone, and as it so happened, no one could live with them. Jesus gives us a second example about pursuing reconciliation in verses 25 and 26. Same principle, different application. Uh, not the worship community this time, but in the law courts. He says, um, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Um, here is not the brother or sister in the, in the worship community, it's, it's the, the accuser. We don't know if that's someone outside the church or inside the church, but somebody who's bringing legal action or something in that context. Um, and Jesus, likewise, is saying, pursue reconciliation quickly. <coughs> to the best of your abilities, don't hang about. He's saying, come to terms out of court, the quicker the better. In other words, the longer you leave it, the worse it will get for you. So he says, even in this context, as you're dealing with those outside the church, be on the front foot of pursuing reconciliation. I wonder what your thoughts are as you're thinking of these things, as we're looking at these words of Jesus about pursuing reconciliation. I wonder, is there a call that you need to make to somebody? Literally a phone call. Is there a conversation that you need to have? Whether, whether you're talking about a recent grievance or something from way back, is there, is there a message that you need to send in order to organize a get-together? Because Jesus says, do whatever it takes to pursue reconciliation. And like Jesus, we go in love. Because of the gospel, we go in humility. But don't delay. By the way, if someone comes to you if you're sat at home and you're just finishing your lunch and then your phone rings and someone wants to meet up 
with some grievance maybe against you or that they have from you or whatever it is, whether there is merit to it or not, whether it is right or wrong or not, whether it's just playing out of left field or not. If that happens to you, then listen to what they're saying. Be humble as you listen to what they are saying. Reflect on what they are saying. Repent based on what they are saying. Whatever is necessary. It might take time, okay? It depends on what issues are or, or what, 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 the, what the thing is. Um, maybe you can just deal with it there and then. And that's it, done, reconciled. Maybe it's something that requires a little more time. But get the ball rolling. Don't shut up shop. Someone comes to you. Okay, so the first alternative to anger is pursue reconciliation. We see that in these verses here. The second one, it's a bit shorter, um, seek the well-being uh, of each other, I suppose. Seek well-being. Um, St. Peter puts it like this. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. Likewise, St. John says, by this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for one another. Seek well-being. As we saw from the Heidelberg Catechism, number 107 there, a few minutes ago, it's not enough not to do these things. It's not enough to simply avoid uh, doing or thinking uh, angry or bad things or, or murderous things. It's not enough. What it says is we should actively seek the well-being of one another as an alternative to anger, as an antidote to anger. We're to love one another instead of hate one another. We, we are to pull up the root and destroy that thing altogether, but we are also to sow the good seed of love. So ask yourself, instead of harboring resentment or, or getting riled with someone for how they've been towards you, how can you show them kindness? How can you show them goodness? How can you show favor to this brother or that brother? Doesn't mean you just turn a blind eye to sin or wrong things they've done. Do deal with that. But let the temperature, let the flavor be that of love, of care, of goodness, of kindness. Remember how Jesus treated his enemies. He prayed for them. He forgave them. He served them. He accepted them back even when they turned against him. He actively sought their well-being. It is hard to pray for someone and hate them at the same time. Amen? So if you are a follower of Jesus, go and do likewise. Let's bring this to, to a close. If you're sitting here this, this morning and, you're, and you're, you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, ask yourself, as much as I'm asking myself this, am I obeying his teaching at this point? Have, in other words, have I found sinful ways to disobey him, to, to sort of get around this teaching, to somehow think it doesn't apply to me? Are you sat in resentment waiting for that person to come to you? when Jesus clearly says, go to them? 
Let's together, let's together hear these words of Jesus today. Let's turn afresh to him. Let's pursue reconciliation. Blessed are the peacemakers. Amen. Let's stand. Let's just have a few moments to reflect on on some of those things. Um, And then after a few moments, we're going to use the words of the Lord's Prayer, the words that Jesus has given uh, for his his disciples. We're going to pray those things. We're going to say them out loud. And we're going to allow them to, to guide our response. So let's just have a few moments of quiet reflection, just listening to God, listening to his spirit, coming to him. And then we'll pray these words together.